It's time now for us to open the Word together. Uh, that's why we're here. Um, I thought briefly about doing a sermon on Levitical hand-washing. Ha <laughs> ha. But uh, that's not what we're going to do this morning. We're going to go in a different direction. In fact, we're taking a break from Philippians um, for this week. Um, the Lord has led us in a fresh direction under the circumstances. Now, I think that you would all agree with me when I say that in our world right now, there is a high level of fear. Um, fear concerning uh, catching the virus, fear concerning transmitting the virus, uh, financial fears uh, about financial insecurity, financial instability, just to name a few fears. The question is, where do we go in the Word of God uh, for a word about fear? Well, of course, there are many places that we could go. Uh, we can probably think of several. One thing we can do is we can go to a certain moment in the history of Israel where we see a very high level of fear. And that is in the famous moment when Israel had a standoff with Philistia, or perhaps better, uh, the moment when an Israelite named David battled a Philistine named Goliath. The verse I want us to consider as we begin is 1 Samuel 17, verse 11. In that verse, we're told that in the moment when the giant Goliath came uh, trash-talking, as he did, arrogantly taunting Israel, then the king of Israel, Saul, along with all Israel, did what? They cowered in fear in that moment. The verse says that when Saul and Israel heard the taunts of Goliath, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Saul and his men saw the threat named Goliath, and they heard the threat named Goliath, and they shrank back in utter fear. They were paralyzed in fear, shaking in their ancient Near Eastern boots. Now, just to get the picture here, what was happening in this battle situation was in fact a common happening in the ancient world. Oftentimes, instead of sending your entire army uh, to fight against another nation's entire army, both sides instead would uh, choose a single champion. Uh, they would each choose from their ranks one particularly worthy and experienced warrior who alone would go forward and represent his nation. Uh, this person would go fight alone against the other nation's uh, chosen champion, and the two of them would settle the national dispute. So whatever the outcome of the combat between the two men, uh, that would decide the fate of the people whom they represented. And this representative combat, as we call it, was a way to minimize uh, extensive bloodshed on both sides, uh, both nations who were having the dispute. Well, of course, most of us know the end of the story that we're talking about. Of, we know David and Goliath in the story. David comes on the scene full of God's spirit. 
Uh, David comes full of confidence in the God who Isaiah 42, 13 says, uh, this is what it says about God. It says, he goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. David with his God renders Goliath inoperative. David fires a stone, the stone sinks into the head of Goliath, Goliath drops, and then David goes forward and he decapitates Goliath. Uh, Israel wins in this situation. God's people win. The one that they had feared so much is now liquidated. He's now gone because David's God made that happen. David's God killed Goliath. The fear of Goliath now is suddenly evaporated. It's gone. I've been thinking this week that, that maybe the, the root issue, the root issue in this current pandemic for a great many people is a certain fear, and that is the fear of death. Buying up 20 packages of toilet paper and 30 jars or cans of Lysol wipes is perhaps a manifestation or, or it's a symptom of the fear of death. Could it be? I think that, that when the possibility of death draws a little nearer, a little closer to us as it now has, uh, the fear of death can manifest in what Colin Smith has called a flurry of activity aimed at increasing our health and safety. Now, of course, I want you to hear me well here. We should be taking the precautions that have been drummed into us over the past days uh, from both government and from healthcare officials concerning this virus. For sure we should do that. None of us should be flippant uh, in this moment, casual about the cleanliness of our hands in particular. Um, this is not a time to be throwing caution to the wind, socializing even. Um, we can socialize via the internet like we're doing now. Um, we should be taking strict measures to protect ourselves and to protect others from this virus. We should be using wisdom. The only point that I'm trying to make here is that the fear of death shows up, it manifests sometimes in irrational ways when death draws a little nearer. I would wager that six weeks ago, the prospect of death seemed much more remote to most of us. We weren't even thinking about death. Uh, entertaining the thought of death. But now for many, they are thinking about it. And their fear of death has increased. And friends, I think it's important for us to name this uncomfortable reality and to talk openly about it, especially as Christian people, the fear of death. The question for you today is, do you fear death? Now, I want to give you the bad news first before we get to the good news, and there is lots of good news coming, so stay tuned. The reality is that unless Jesus comes for us during our lifetime, while we're still alive on this earth, 
we will all die someday. Now, we don't know when our death might happen. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be next week. For some of us, it could be 10, 20, 30, 50, even 70 years from now. We don't know uh, when our dying uh, will happen. But the reality of our death is as certain as anything else that is certain is certain. We want to talk, though, about the fear of dying. Now, there, there's a writer that I, a pastor, actually, that I, I, pastor and writer, that I greatly respect, and his name is R. Kent Hughes. I want to give you some content from Hughes where he tackles this question. question is, why do so many people fear death? Hughes writes that the reasons people fear death are many, and the reasons are of various weight. First of all, he says, people fear death because they fear the physical pain that may accompany death. Although, Hughes says, most deaths are, medically speaking, not that painful. Number two, people fear death because they fear separation from what they know and from ones whom they love. Third, people fear death because they fear the unknown. As he puts it, launching one's vessel on an uncharted sea. Number four, many people fear death because they have the fear of non-being, the fear of non-being. This is the idea that we will maybe cease to exist altogether after we die. Many people fear death for that reason. And then number five, some people fear death because they fear everlasting punishment. For all these various reasons, people fear dying. And it's true that for some people, the fear of death can be a paralyzing fear, uh, just like the sight of Goliath and the, the sound of Goliath's voice uh, was a paralyzing thing for Saul and for his men. Now, wouldn't it be wonderful? I want you to think about this. Wouldn't it be wonderful? Wouldn't it be magnificent? If there was a champion, a new David, who went up against death itself to render death ineffective and thus to liberate us from our fear of death. I mean, wouldn't that be fantastic? Wouldn't it be the greatest thing in all the universe if there was a new David who somehow could transform dying so that the scary teeth, the fearsome jaws of death were taken out altogether and death became a non-issue. Wouldn't that be amazing and fantastic and wonderful? Well, I want us to turn to the text that we have under consideration this morning. It's not uh, 1 Samuel 17. The text is found in the second chapter of Hebrews. In that chapter, we see that, in fact, God has given. He has given us such a champion, and the name of the champion is Jesus. I want us to start with a brief look at Hebrews 2, verse 10. Let's focus on the phrase, founder of their salvation. 
And let's focus even more specifically on the word founder. The English Standard Version translates the word as founder here, but the New American Standard Bible uses the word author here. And the King James Version uses the word captain. So there are a few different choices for translation. In his commentary on Hebrews, uh, William Lane translates the word here as champion. The champion of their salvation. Lane says that Jesus is depicted here, quote, he's depicted here as the champion who came to the aid of the oppressed people of God. Jesus identified himself with them as their representative. Yes. Jesus is the new champion of his people. He is the new David who comes in the name of the Lord and with the spirit of the Lord to war on behalf of his fearful people and to win the battle for them. And in the context of this part of Hebrews, chapter 2, the Goliath that the new David comes to war against and to defeat is none other than the devil. And the devil is described in this passage as holding the power of death. The devil is the tyrant. The devil is the strong man. He is the giant that the fearful people face. And the devil holds in his hand a most powerful weapon, which is the power of death. Jesus comes against him in fulfillment of Isaiah 49, verses 24 through 26. I want to read Isaiah 49, verses 24 through 26 to you. The verses read as follows. Can the prey be taken from the mighty? Or the captives of a tyrant be rescued. For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood, as with wine. Jesus comes in fulfillment of that passage in Isaiah. He comes as Yahweh in the flesh to take captives away from the tyrant named Satan. He comes as God's appointed champion to rescue those at whose throats Satan was holding the fearsome weapon, which is the power of death. In the words of Jesus himself in Luke chapter 11, Jesus comes as the one stronger. Remember that passage, the one stronger than the fully armed strong man. Jesus comes to attack and overcome Satan and to take away Satan's armor and to divide the spoil that the devil had been guarding. But I want us to deepen in here even further. So now we want to go to what is technically our preaching text this morning. I know that was a long introduction. We're still in Hebrews chapter 2, but now we're at verses 14 and 15. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Now we might think right now that the greatest reality in all the world is COVID-19. 
But to borrow the words of John Piper, he says, these two verses in Hebrews, so Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, these two verses in Hebrews set before us a sequence of what really are the greatest realities in the world. Let's tread slowly uh, through these two verses. Are you ready? The writer of Hebrews says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. Now in the context, the children mentioned here are the spiritual offspring of Jesus Christ. They are children of God because of being in union with Christ, because of being in Christ. And the writer says here, they share in flesh and blood. That is, as God's children in Christ, we are flesh and blood. We are material. We are corporeal beings with tangible material bones and hair and flesh and organs. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, the champion, Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things. The same things that Jesus partook in here are the flesh and blood that have just been mentioned. Jesus, the Son of God, partook or he shared with us in our flesh and blood and bones and hair and material organs. So what this part of the verse is describing is the incarnation, right? That moment when the second person of the Trinity assumed flesh, born of the Virgin Mary. We know that God the Son existed eternally prior to his moment of incarnation, but at the incarnation, he became fully man while remaining fully God. In the words of John in his gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The eternal word became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son took on human flesh. Now, just as a little interlude here, think of the immense dignity that the fact of the incarnation confers on human beings. Listen, God being God, he could have incarnated himself taking on dog flesh if he had wanted to do that. He could have um, taken on giraffe flesh, or he could have taken on mallard duck flesh, but he took on human flesh. Human beings alone amongst God's creatures are made in the image of God. Human beings alone have the honor of having God incarnate himself as one of us. And on this note, I want to read you what I think is a very thought-provoking paragraph from Scott Harrower's recent book. The book is titled, God of All Comfort, A Trinitarian Response to the Horrors of This World. So this is written just last year. Harrower says this. I want you to listen. Quote, the incarnation affirms the basic dignity and value of his images over and above other creatures. Humans are particularly noble in God's eyes. They are precious images of God. God's incarnation, so his taking on human flesh, 
is an objective basis for orienting us to the fact that he cares about the safety and restoration of people's relational, moral, and creative aspects. His care is not undermined or overturned by horrors and traumas. And we can chime in here perhaps and say God's care is not undermined or overturned by horrors and traumas like COVID-19. I want you to remember that God's care is not overturned or undermined by a horror and a trauma like COVID-19. But let's go back to our text. We've talked about the incarnation. There was a specific purpose for God the Son taking on human flesh. There was a specific reason for this breathtaking uh, divine move. Notice that the purpose or the reason for his incarnation is given next in verse 14. Jesus partook of flesh and blood that through death, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. We've said so often the purpose of Christmas, the purpose of the incarnation, was Calvary, the cross, the death of Jesus. And here we have that reality in this verse. The purpose of Christmas was Good Friday. Jesus partook of flesh and blood, Christmas, so that he could die a human death as a man in the flesh on Good Friday. He died as a human being in solidarity with human beings. His death being um, uniquely powerful in all of history, uh, efficacious to achieve God's purposes. Now notice in our text that the weapon God uses against the devil is the death of Jesus. It's very interesting. Notice that very carefully, that through death, Jesus might destroy the devil. The death of Christ is the divine nuclear weapon that God uses to render the devil inoperative. And, and the Greek word here that the English, tra uh, English Standard Version translates as destroy, this word means to make ineffective or to incapacitate, to render inoperative. So here's a picture. This might help us a little bit. Here's a picture, and I'm borrowing this from John Stott. So think of a tree that is very diseased. This tree is still standing, but it's very diseased, and it, it is to die altogether very soon. The severely diseased tree, of course, is not able to be fruitful like it once was. The tree is now inoperative, but there it is. The tree is still standing. Of course, it's standing, but it's tending toward death. Well, that's a picture of what the death of Jesus has done to the devil. The devil is the diseased, terminally ill tree, as it were. He, he's still standing, but he's a severely diseased, soon-to-die, hopeless being. The devil is still around for now. He, he still schemes against us, and he still sets snares and traps for us. 
Um, he still tempts us. We still need to resist him, as James 4, 7 tells us. Uh, he's still our adversary who prowls around like a roaring lion, uh, seeking someone to devour. But the devil's power has ultimately been broken, hasn't it? It's been rendered useless and in, inoperative, completely inoperative, uh, by the death of Jesus Christ in an ultimate way. The death of Jesus has incapacitated the devil. But how exactly? How, how did this work? Well, listen, the biggest weapon against us that this Goliath named Satan had was the weapon of using our own sin against us, accusing us. Scripture calls the devil the accuser. He attempts to uh, accuse people over their sin. But the death of Jesus on the cross nullified the weapon of accusation. Because at the cross, Jesus took all of our sin and he paid the penalty for our sin with his own blood. We are justified before God by the blood of Jesus, as it says in Romans 5 verse 9. Satan now has zero grounds to accuse us, to, to accuse the believer of his or her sin before God. There, there's no basis for that accusation anymore. Listen to John Piper again. He says this, quote, If the death of Jesus takes away the condemning power of our sin, then the chief weapon of the devil is taken out of his hand. He cannot make a case for our death penalty because the judge has acquitted us by the death of his son. The sting of death is gone. Our sin is forgiven and the law is fulfilled. Amen. And praise God for the cross of Jesus Christ. But at this point, some of us might be wondering here, so, so then why is it that physical death is still a reality for us? Um, if Jesus has destroyed the, the devil, the one who had the power of death, uh, shouldn't death be a, death itself be a thing of the past if at the cross Jesus destroyed the one who had the power of death? Well, the fact is, friends, that the total annihilation of death itself is coming in the future. We can be assured of that. According to Revelation 20, verse 14, the great day is coming when death is going to be thrown into the lake of fire. According to Revelation 21, 4, the great day is coming when death will be no more. Wow. Death, in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, death is described there as the last enemy to be destroyed. The fact is, on that great day of the Lord, death will be destroyed. And we need to understand that death itself then, it has a shelf life. Death itself is on a timeline. Death intruded into the world as part of the due penalty for human sin. In fact, God promised death in the Garden of Eden, should the first human couple disobey, which they did. Death came into the world because human sin against God happened, and death is still a reality for us, 
Because right now, and I want you to, to get this, right now we live in the overlap of the ages. Death is a part of the old age. And right now we live in the overlap of the old age and the new age. One day, the new age that was inaugurated in the first coming of Jesus Christ into the world, the new age will be everything. It will eclipse everything. The old age characterized by sin, death, the devil is going to disappear forever. But right now, physical death is still a reality for the believer and for everybody else. But now here's the thing, and I want you to listen closely as we wrap this toward a close now. I want you to listen closely. The truth is this, that the death and resurrection of Jesus have transformed the very nature of our physical death as believers. I'll say that again. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ have transformed the very nature of our physical death as believers. And this is a truth that I pray God will inscribe on our hearts right now. This, this is a life-giving, freedom-bringing truth. The death and resurrection of Jesus have transformed the very nature of our physical death as believers. Let's listen very carefully to what God says to us in our final verse this morning, Hebrews 2.15. So Hebrews 2.15 picks up from verse 14. So the death of Jesus, along with being effective to destroy the devil, to destroy the devil's weapons, the death of Jesus also delivers all those who through fear of death, notice, were subject to lifelong slavery. Notice carefully the words there. It doesn't say deliver all those who through death were subject to lifelong slavery. It says deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The fear of death means lifelong bondage, lifelong slavery. The fear of death means shackles on a person that can manifest in great anxiety, causing that person to act in irrational ways. But friends, the atoning sacrificial, propitiatory, expiatory, redeeming, substitutionary, reconciling, justifying, devil-destroying death of Jesus Christ has also had this effect described here in this verse. It's had this effect to liberate us from the slavery of being afraid of death. To stop our anxiety about death. How does the death of Jesus free us from our fear of dying? Why, as Christians, do we not need to fear our death? Let's talk about this. If you're like me, from an early age, uh, you've had what I would call a, a dull inkling 
um, a sense inside, even if you weren't yet a believer, maybe you've had this nagging internal sense that there's a cosmic judge who is evaluating your life. And that when you die, you, you will have to face this judge. You've had this sense. And, and that it might not turn out well for you. There's a fear there. I want you to listen. The one who puts his or her trust in Jesus knows that all the sin in one's life all the sin in one's life was judged at the cross of Jesus. It was all judged and punished in the death of Jesus. Amazing grace, believer. Jesus has died as your God-appointed substitute. So that when you die, as Colin Smith puts it, it will not be an entrance into God's condemning judgment. It will rather be a passage into God's presence for the believer, into God's arms. Death for the believer in Jesus is a going forth into the embrace of the God who is love. We said it before and we'll say it again. The death and resurrection of Jesus have transformed the very nature of our physical death as believers. We need not fear death. Further to this, we're worshiping this morning, Jesus also makes the mind-blowing promise. I've often come back to this verse. It's a mind-blowing promise. John 8, 51, he makes the promise that the believer who keeps his word will not even see death even though the body of that person will expire. The believer in Jesus will be spared the dark, uh, terrifying fangs of death in the moment when the heart stops beating and the brain stops functioning and the organs shut down. If anyone keeps my word, says Jesus, he or she will never see death. Wow. In another place, Jesus says that if we believe in him, we will live even though we die. He goes on to say there, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus, by his death and resurrection, has transformed the very nature of our physical death as believers. We need not fear death as believers in Jesus Christ. We need not fear it. Say it with me right now from wherever you're sitting. If I am a believer in Jesus, I need not fear my dying. I love this paragraph from Colin Smith. He says this, quote, For the Christian believer, death is the moment of translation into the presence of Christ. Death is the point at which Christ brings you into his presence, and then he announces you before the Father. I love that. Smith says, you will not receive the gift of the resurrection body until the day Christ returns, and then all believers will receive that gift together. 
but you will enter immediately and consciously into the presence of Christ in triumph and unspeakable joy. Believer, you need not be paralyzed by the fear of death like Saul was paralyzed uh, when he faced Goliath. You know, it's no wonder that Paul could call death gain, as we've seen already in Philippians 1.21. And it's no wonder that he could say to the Philippians, I desire to depart, and there uh, depart means uh, depart this life. I desire to depart and be with Christ, he says, which is better by far. No wonder Paul could say in 2 Corinthians uh, 5.8, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. For Paul, who had staked his life on Jesus, dying was understood as an entrance into something far better than anything that this life had offered him. Death was an entrance into the presence of Jesus, Paul's Savior and Paul's Lord. Again, I say to you, the death and resurrection of Jesus have transformed the very nature of our physical death as believers. Doesn't Romans 8, uh, 38 tell you, my believing friend, doesn't it tell you that not even death can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? Doesn't 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty five preach to you? That the sting of your dying, the sting of your dying has been removed by what Jesus has done. And doesn't Revelation 1.18 bring peace to your heart when it declares to you, when Jesus declares to you there, that he holds the keys of death. The devil doesn't hold the keys of death. Jesus holds the keys of death. You need not fear death. You need not live panicked with anxiety in this pandemic. Live right now, believer, using wisdom. Heed the directives of the government and healthcare officials, but don't fear, don't live panicked, don't do crazy things uh, like those who fear death. Your champion, your representative named Jesus, your savior and your captain named Jesus has nullified the devil and he has made the power of death mute. Jesus has killed death with his own death. By his death and by his resurrection, he has transformed the very nature of your dying so that you need not fear it any longer. So live in the liberating power of the crucified and risen Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, what a reality it is in your word that you have revealed to us that you conquered death and that one of the purposes in your son's death on the cross was to deliver us from the fear of death. You are worthy to be praised for your mighty acts. I want to pray for each person now in our congregation for an abiding uh, peace during this time, that none of us would be afraid, that none of us would be downcast in soul, that, that we would know your presence with us during this time, 
and that we would follow your directive to cast all our anxieties on you because you care for us. I pray for our elderly people. I pray for our children. I pray for our youth and for our, our adults as well. Lord, that your mercy and that your protection would be very real to them, that, that you would provide uh, material, material help, Lord, where needed uh, in a time of need. We pray also, Lord, for um, the mental health of each person listening that our outlook and our perspective would just be full of Christ and full of the gospel, full of hope. I also want to pray, Lord, uh, this morning for every missionary that our church supports, and there are many of them, Lord, wherever they are right now, Lord, I pray that your word would be precious to them right now, that your love uh, would be evidenced to them in a very special and perhaps even surprising way and that you would protect them, and that you would give them uh, great hope and great comfort. We pray also, Lord, this morning for all of those in our congregation uh, who work in healthcare, and indeed for all healthcare workers, Lord, we pray that you would give them special um, sustenance, that you would give them special strength and special grace and patience and wisdom and protection during this time. Lord, for our city, for our province of Quebec, for uh, our nation of Canada, indeed for the entire world, Lord, we pray for your mercy. We ask that you would bring an end to this pandemic, but Lord, that in the immediate, that we would use your wisdom and operate in your strength and be refreshed, Lord, in you and in the hope of the gospel. Forgive us our sins. Create in us a clean heart and help each of us know how best uh, to respond to one another as people on the cross, people of the cross, I should say, in this, in this season, in this situation. And Lord, as we continue during this time to worship you um, with financial giving, we do it with a cheerful heart and we ask, Lord, that you would use our gifts for the furtherance of your agenda and your kingdom. We pray all of these things in the mighty and the powerful name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. And now here's a very uh, fitting benediction uh, written by Dale Ralph Davis. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in all your troubles and darkness, remember what you are and what you have. You have been loved with an everlasting love. You are supported by everlasting arms. You are recipients of everlasting life and you are heirs of an everlasting kingdom, all sealed and made sure by the blood of an everlasting covenant. Amen. <laughs>